a reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 46. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids may be dismissed for Children's Church with Kelly. I do mean kids' church, but I did say dismissed, which I'm not supposed to say. Invited. Lord, I want to see, is what Bartimaeus proclaims to Jesus when asked, what is it you want? This Sunday is um, a bit of an odd Sunday because it's, it's Palm Sunday, which is uh, when you're an associate pastor, you get invited to preach Palm Sunday a lot so that the senior pastor can prep for Easter, um, and you run out of things to say. Um, and it's a hard Sunday because each one of the Gospels has a different portrait of what's happening on Palm Sunday. This one, palms aren't mentioned. Palms are mentioned in John's Gospel and I think Matthew's. Um, leafy branches is the word. Zechariah is alluded to in, in two of the Gospels as sort of this fulfillment of the prophecies, but Mark leaves that off. And so like on Palm Sunday, we have all these sorts of things coming together. And I think what the church or what the Gospel writers are preserving for us is that Jesus had this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and in some ways it captures the ambivalence of his mission here on earth, or at least for, for his disciples and for the crowds, it captures the ambivalence of his mission here on earth, that there are people who, who they use divine language for this, they use prophecy fulfillment languages, but it's not yet. For instance, if we had Palm Sunday, but no Good Friday and no Easter, we would have this triumphant king who comes and reigns over Jerusalem and sets God's reign into earth that day. And that seems to be some of the expectation of what's happening, is that these, and, and it's interesting, this is the Passover time, it's the time of liberation that these pilgrims are going up to Jerusalem. And what's happening in this time of liberation is, is there's, a, there's a likelihood that people are caught up in this proclamation. Jesus' disciples and his followers are the ones maybe proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and seeing the divinic reign on this one who rides on a, on a donkey. But, but what they, they find is that others are caught up in this. 
Passover would be the time in which the people of this time would be looking for the liberation for themselves from their Roman captors. And so there's this, there's this way in which what's happening in, in Palm Sunday is this way in which certainly the early church, but also us, we can project all our sort of confusions about who Jesus is on top of it. Is he this dominant king who's going to come and ride over the enemies as if um, uh, a victor in war? Is he this one who comes and is enthroned on a cross instead? Is he one whom, whom his political mission is his point? Or is he one there's this spiritual liberation about which he's about? And all these questions come up for us with Palm Sunday. Now, one of my favorite things, and if you've been here before, although... I don't know when I last shared it on Palm Sunday, is to share this observation from, from Gerhard Lofink. Um, he says, Where do the real changes happen in the world? The things that move peoples to the depths of their souls, the things that petrify them or drive them forward, that will incite this or that revolution or prevent it, that destroys dreams or bespose a new hope. Does any of that show up in the news? Can it be adequately shown? A British computer scientist supposedly fed 300 million so-called facts into a machine he programmed, nicely nicknamed True Knowledge. He wanted to find out what was the most boring day of the 20th century. The things we get when we invent this technology. I know what I'm going to do. I want to find out what the most boring day of the 20th century is. Congrats. But the computer found it. Um, it was uh, April 11th, 1954 was the most boring day. Now, a while back, somebody was here when I made that point, and it was their birthday was April 11th, and I felt bad. Uh, um, and they're not here, so good on me. Um, on that day, supposedly, nothing important happened. No famous person was born, no celebrity died, nothing exploded, no war broke out, no house collapsed. But Lofink finishes with the, what the way the media thinks is clearly revealed in this absurd computer game. An event has to be something that shrieks, stinks, or explodes. Incidentally, April 11th, 1954 was a Palm Sunday. In case it might have been that on that day, even a few thousand believers took the beginning of Holy Week and the entry of Jesus into his city so much into their hearts that their lives were somehow changed. Then on that day, a great deal happened, and it was very important indeed. What the, the Palm Sunday reveals for us is this way we look towards those grand events. And the challenge for us today is at first to take that Palm Sunday event so into our hearts that somehow we're changed. And this begins our Holy Week journey. I don't know, here's this, this bookmark I made. I don't know if you got one, there's probably more at the front, um, that has the readings for us to participate on uh, Holy Week. Now, we've been sticking with Mark's gospel, and so the, the readings, uh, you'll go through the first three chapters of Lamentations, four chapters, three chapters of Lamentations, and some epistle readings is um, taken from the uh, daily office in the Book of Common Prayer, but adapted some so that we finish Mark together, that, that Mark is the gospel reading that brings us to its completion. But these are things that I hope can draw us, not just today, but throughout this week into the deeper truths of what Holy Week, what the crucifixion, what Holy Saturday, and what then the Easter truth can shine all the brighter for us. 
that we can walk this path from what seems like an ecstatic entry all the way to the desolation of the cross. And that that somehow can transform for us too. And so those are available in, in the bookmark form and in, in the back. Um, and, and I encourage you to read through those. I also encourage you to get uh, here to Good Friday if you can. Uh, that's 5.30 here on Friday. Uh, we'll have Kids Church, I think, right, Emily? Yep, Emily's going to be doing Kids Church. Um, so there'll be a kids stuff and there'll be a worship service. Um, and for us to sit in that day too, that darkness that comes over the land so that we too can sort of have this come for us. You'll notice I added um, the final teaching and what we've been walking through in these last chapters of Mark, or the final healing of Bartimaeus, which we'll talk about today as well. But what's interesting about the Passover Sunday is I love the way that the geography tells the story. Now, Shelley's probably, you've been to Jericho? It's 600 feet below sea level, does that sound right? But there they probably use meters, so it's like whatever. it could be a million meters. I'd be like, okay. Um, uh, that's a joke on how Americans don't know the metric system. Um, the uh, 600 feet below sea level is that there is, this is where he runs in, uh, and it seems like on Friday, into Bartimaeus. Then on Saturday, they, they Sabbath, and then they do the, the 12 to 18-mile journey up to Jerusalem together with the other pilgrims for the Passover. And so this journey starts low, starts lower than the sea, and it moves up to Jerusalem. It moves up to the hill upon which Christ is crucified. So when we look at at what Christ does is he walks the depths on this journey as well. He goes to the darkest and deepest places, as we'll see. And it's encapsulated in the way in which he moves towards this final journey, this final end. It's told in the places that they go. Now in Mark's gospel telling Jesus, Jesus um, commands the disciples to go and find a colt for him. And it's one that's never been written. This is, this is an Old Testament prophecy. And what we see happening in, in this Holy Week events is more and more the prophecies upon who Jesus is 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 laid over him i can't remember who first said it but but that they proclaimed that the gospels were passion narratives passion week narratives with long introductions attached to them because it's here all four gospels get similar too and it's here the overlaid meaning of not just what he did but who he is becomes clear Who he is, is he is one who rides a colt that has never been ridden. In a way that, and he um, commandeers an animal the way that a king could. The Lord needs it, they say. The Lord needs it. Is, Is that he's able to sort of take this animal and go on this way. And and there's this divine providence that begins to show up in the scene that so much more as he's getting bound and taken about in Jerusalem, more and more it seems like what is being fulfilled is what needs to be done. The more you restrict him, the more he becomes who he's supposed to be. Even here is is that he's able to sort of take this animal and then fulfill this prophecy along the way. That he becomes this one. 
that it's never been ridden, they untie it and bring it. Um, and they find it just as it is. In their obedience, they go out and they find it just as it is. And, the, and people take this, I love the part is, why are you doing, untying that colt? And they answer that Jesus had told them and the people let them go. That they let him go on the way with the colt. Like everything sort of is coming together, which you'll see more as you read through Mark's narrative towards the end. Many people, they spread their cloaks over the colt first. And this is this figurative way of, of being... Um, uh, laying before the king. That like if you lay your cloak over it and he sits on that, it's as if your body were laying before them as they go on this march, that they're, they're, they're treating him in this kingly way. While they spread branches and they lay their cloaks on the road and Jesus comes up and they shout Hosanna, which it seems like at this time has become to me mean like um, in church uh, parlance like we say uh, hallelujah but it's not in reference to like really that it's just an exciting word but but hosanna at this time means literally save us they proclaim to this one even as they maybe don't know it save us blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord from psalm 118 these psalms that they would sing together on this way in, in Mark, he adds, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, which goes back to Bartimaeus calling him son of David. Those are the two instances of David, I think, in Mark's gospel, or at least up until this point, they're the two instances. But this coming kingdom, which Jesus proclaimed at the beginning of the gospel, that what Jesus is doing, as we've talked about, is coming and taking territory back that belongs to God. That God is taking them along this way. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They, they proclaim and bring Jesus into this place, and he enters into Jerusalem, his heavenly city at night. And this is the movement of what happens in this story. I love the way that Martin Luther puts it, too, in the quote that's on the back of the bulletin. Nothing but the mercy, tenderness, and kindness of Christ, uh, nothing but the mercy, tenderness, and, and kindness of Christ are here shown. And he who receives it and believes it on him is saved. He sits not on a proud seed, an animal of war, nor does he come in great pomp and power, but sitting upon an ass, an animal of peace, fit only for the burdens and labor and a help to man. He indicates by this that he comes not to frighten man, nor to drive or to crush him, but to help him and to carry his burden. That what Luther sees captured in this, in this prophetic moment is not this way in which Jesus just comes as, as a conqueror, but he is our help. Hosanna, save us. He's the one who's going to save them. But he saves them by lifting that burden for them. And what's happening in Mark's gospel is, is, is Jericho, as we remember, where the Bartimaeus healing is and where this journey sort of begins to set out from, is the first place conquered by the Jews in the Old Testament as they go into the promised land. The geography, again, is that Jesus is leaving from that city, that conquered city, to set up his kingdom, that kingdom of the coming David they talk about. But what he's naming for them throughout this gospel is they think they need to be freed from Rome, when in fact there is one stronger than them and the demonic forces that seem to, to try and bind him and tempt him and destroy him. And not only that, there is ways in which they are suffering in their own spiritual darkness. The Christ is coming to free us and to set up the preliminary signs of his kingdom here on earth. But in a way, and it's, 
um, we often think, but in a spiritual way, but that undercuts the tangibleness of this kingdom, right? Because spiritual to us, for some reason, maybe I'm alone in this, means disembodied, right? It means it's not of tangible nature. But Jesus' spiritual kingdom is of tangible nature, but what it is going after, I mean, this is, the healings are of tangible nature as signs of this. But what it's setting up is that kingdom up against its true foes. That's where it's, it's, it's aligned in a different way. It's looking at the true foes that sort of bind us and destroy us because what happens with the previous one is that they go to the promised land and they can't hold it. They can't live that way. So there's something still that still distorts them after they get to that place. And what, kingdom, what Jesus comes to do is sort of get it at its root, to get those things at the place where they originally lie and their destruction originally happens. And so we have this way of, of inaugurating our journey into Holy Week today. After this, Jesus, he goes to the temple, which is very anticlimactic, and then leaves and goes to Bethany. And the next day, you kind of get an idea of why they kill him. He, he sort of kills a fig tree, um, and then, uh, more climactic for sure, um, and then goes into the temple and sort of cleanses their religious site. Um, and the fig tree being this example of, of what Israel's spiritual state was. So he goes and performs prophetic actions where you would go, yeah, this guy who we've been watching and tracking so far, once he got to Jerusalem, is even more um, attacking us and what we stand for. And what he's trying to do is reveal the heart of what it is. This brings us backwards just a little bit to Bartimaeus. This is what I really wanted to, to sort of focus on today. Um, because what happens in blindness, there's two blind men healed in Mark's gospel. One is healed right around the confession of faith that Peter says, you are Christ the Messiah, that that one is healed. And there's this idea of, can the disciples see who Jesus is going to be? Can we, as we watch Jesus go up on Palm Sunday, see who Jesus is going to be? Who is Christ for us? Just in the last scene, the disciples were arguing over who was going to sit at the right and the left, getting to the point that they may not be able to see who Jesus is. They may not be able to grasp who this one and who this kingdom is. So right before he goes up into Jerusalem, he heals Bartimaeus. He heals this one. He asks them the same question that the other ones were asked too. As they came to Jericho, and Jesus and the disciples together with a large clown were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting on the road begging. When he heard it was Jesus in Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. This blind man sitting, it seems like at the entrance or the exit to the city, and there was some teaching at the time that blindness made you ritually unclean so that you couldn't go to Jerusalem as well. Going back to Jesus going to the heart of the matter. He goes to the heart of what is going on with this. And there's this blind man, and, and this is always open to a bunch of interpretation too, but it, but it seems like he has fallen into poverty. He was not initially in poverty. 
And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. That he's able to see in some sense that Jesus, for the first time, is being named as the son of David, who's going to Jerusalem to reclaim his kingdom in some way. He asked for mercy, and uh, Kyrie eleison, this is similar to that, uh, uh, have mercy on us, and that hymn that the church has, has held out for so long is that this, have mercy upon me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Now, this is interesting that the rebuke, because if you've been around, I don't know, uh, many of you if you've been to live sporting events, but often going into the sporting event, there's somebody yelling and making quite a scene. Um, and it varies from uh, anything. <laughs> um, um, but it's always an annoyance, I think, for everybody else. Um, it's always this, oh, if that person would just stop. And this is, this is where the crowd, I think, is like, Shush, Bartimaeus. Um, stop your screaming and yelling at this place. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet in his blindness. But this is the, the, the paradox or the, the, the mystery of this passage is the blind man is seeing who Jesus is. The blind man is the one who's able to have the spiritual sight, not just to proclaim as the son of David, but to know he is the one who can heal him and that mercy relies in. He knows he's the actor who in some sense will save him from this. Jesus stopped and said, call him. I love how fast crowds turn. So they called the blind man, cheer up. We were just yelling at you. Um, on your feet, he's calling you. And the reason I laid this out is throwing his cloak aside. He jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. At this moment in Israel's life together is that it's probably too warm to be wearing a cloak. And so what Bartimaeus has before him is the cloak of his begging the cloak at which he is provided on. And because it's Passover and many people are going up to Jerusalem, you can imagine there's some coins upon it. Now I'm not going to, Jeremy's like, he's going to whip this in my face. I'm not, I don't do exaggerated movements as a preacher. I'm very boring. Um, but what Bartimaeus does, and it's important to remember that he is blind, is he throws off his cloak and gets up and goes to Jesus. There is a large crowd. You have a cloak. You have some money on your cloak. To throw that off means you think something is going to happen. It's, it's, I, it's almost kind of a, a throwaway line, I think, in the commentary from uh, William Placker, but I think about it all the time when I think about this story. As Bartimaeus throws off his cloak and moves towards Jesus, a bold action in Jesus. A cloak might have been a beggar's only possession, and a blind man who tosses something aside in a crowd may never find it again. A blind man who tosses something aside in a crowd may never find it again. 
He is doing completely what the rich man could not do himself to do, casting aside everything he possesses to come to Jesus. Jesus proclaims this man faith at the end, but the faith is embodied in the act. I'm blind. I sit here. This is who I am, and I cast aside all of that in the midst of this crowd, knowing that it is unlikely I will ever find it again. crowd calls him to Jesus, and he jumps up, throwing his cloak aside, and Jesus asks him, what is it you want me to do for you? I'm trying to think of... This question of what is it you want me to do for you was asked before. This is a, a small interlude into a Russian movie called um, The Stalker. Has anybody seen it? Good. <laughs> um, uh, the stalker takes place in some sort of um, post-apocalyptic space, and, and there's this DMZ zone, this empty zone, in which there is a room in which if you enter it, what you desire will be given to you. What is it you want me to do is in some sense what the room provides for you. And these two men hire the stalker, that's what he is, to bring them to the room to bring them through the DMZ all the way to the room to have what it is that they want most revealed to them. I forget what they want, but, but as they go through the journey, they become more and more aware of it. What is it that they want? What is this thing that will be revealed to them? Because this is a chance to think about our own desires. Um, Bishop Robert Barron, one of the Catholic barons, in his study Bible for notes, that Bartimaeus' story is the story of the small soul that needs to be made large. The person that needs to be expanded into this kingdom of reconfigured and expanded. And so as we sit in the darkness of our small souls, like what is it you want? What is it you desire will be given to you? And it's not obvious to these men as they journey along the way, that they'll get what they think they'll get. You can speak what you desire. You can say the prayers. You can go through this. You can go through the actions. But is that what's most at the center of you seems to be happening for these? This is not a Christian film. And what happens around the way is they're told the story of the hedgehog, which is uh, the stalker, the man who trained the stalker. And the, the stalker's not supposed to go into the room. Well, the guy who is the hedgehog does go into the room. And he comes out, and he gets all wealth and riches as he gets out of the room. And what the hedgehog realizes, sort of, is what I most desired was this lame. What I most desired was just wealth, which I now have, which proceeds to emptiness. So the question in this passage, I think, for our souls that have been touched and expanded by Jesus as Christians, is still, what is it we want? Because the last people, just 10 verses before, to answer this question said, well, we want to sit at your right and your left when the kingdom comes. Jesus corrects them that it's not this that he can hand out. But Bartimaeus' answer is that he wants to see. He comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, I want to see. Hearing that they may not hear, seeing 
though they do not see. This is what it's told earlier in, in Mark's gospel, is that seeing in blindness, the darkness of the small soul, is not just seen. He wants to be able to see what Jesus is in his truth and go along with this. Now, Bartimaeus, I don't think, is better than the disciples as they get to Jerusalem. But what he does next is he follows him along the road. Bartimaeus gets up and follows Jesus along the road into Jerusalem. That he goes along with him. So it is for us to think about what is that? What is it you want to question? But go, uh, and the rabbi I want to see is how are we invited into that dual vision of seeing the kingdom's work in the world, of being agents of the kingdom. I, I talk about this in other places, that, that, that to be empowered by the Spirit, often in the book of Acts, is to have eyesight that enables you to see the way the world truly is. To be full of the Spirit is to be able to say what's true in its fullness of time. I want to see, Rabbi, is what Bartimaeus asked for. Immediately received his sight and follows Jesus along the road. Oh, sorry, your faith has healed you. Uh, translations have a lot of fun with this because it means both things. It's, it's uh, Eugene Peterson, as he often does in the message, cheats. It's uh, he says, your faith has healed you and saved you. The Greek word for healed goes both ways. Your faith has healed you is probably most common in our modern translations, is, is that he receives his healing and his sight again. But there's another way in which this is the faith that saves him. He's not just healed but he's saved and brought into this kingdom all over again. He's rescued in this way. So Bartimaeus becomes this sign for us, I think both on the expansion of the soul, but on discipleship in that journey. And what is it that we want? I think to, to close for today's sermon, I'd gone back and forth on this, is, is that the Sunday of Palm Sunday is often known as Passion Sunday. Um, and, and so what you would do, because people often don't make it to Good Friday services, is you would also read the Passion account. Uh, there's a longer Passion account that we'll read on Good Friday, Mark's Gospel, and there's a shorter Passion account. But to close the sermon, I'll read that, and then we'll uh, worship together. Um, uh, grab a bookmark. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and that scene thing, I will say the last thing is, it's not the same Greek word, but the, the, the quote on the front of the bookmark, the man looks and he sees and says, this is truly God's son. Um, it's not until he's crucified and dead on the cross that someone is actually able to confess the identity of who Jesus is. So we'll start in Mark 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was custom at the festival to release the prisoner who the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came to him, 
and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him? But the chief priest stirred the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas and said, What shall I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucifying him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had flogged, Jesus flogged, and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing along the way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They had offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified the two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that he may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme shabakanah, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he had died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we gather together on this Palm Sunday and prepare our hearts and mind and our souls to walk with you on the journey to the cross, knowing that we don't go the full way, but each fall away along. And in your faithfulness, in your saving of us when you refuse to save yourself, you bring about the salvation of mankind. God, may you enliven in us this week the call of Bartimaeus. Have mercy upon us. May we, like him, rise seen again and follow you along the way into the city. 
that be near to us now in the pattern of your Father and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.